Okay, round two. Name something that's not boring. A laundry? Ooh, a book club. Computer solitaire, huh? Ah, oh, sorry. We were looking for Chumba Casino. That's right. Chumbacasino.com has over 100 casino-style games. Join today and play for free for your chance to redeem some serious prizes. Chumbacasino.com. No purchase necessary. Forward, prohibited by law. 18 plus terms and conditions apply. See website for details. Spin your passion into a business with Shopify and break sales records with the world's best converting checkout. Let's hear that one more time. The world's best converting checkout. Shopify's legendary checkout makes it easier for customers to shop on your website, across social media, and everywhere in between. Now that's music to your ears. Any way you spin it, you can be a smash hit with Shopify. Start your dollar a month trial today at shopify.com slash records. You don't put those inside of you, do you? This is a show about women. I mean, you do? Finally, a show about women that isn't just a thinly-veiled aspirational nightmare. It's not hosted, not narrated, we're just dropping into a woman's world. I found out when my dad was gay when I was 10. We were in a convertible on the 405 freeway, listening to the B-52s. Looking back, I should have said, this is gay. This is already all gay. (laughs) Listen to Finally a Show on the iHeartRadio app, Apple Podcasts, or wherever you get your podcasts. Podcast. It's 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 a podcast that you're listening to. It's it could happen here. It's the 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 the, the show where things fall apart and so you put them back together again. And actually, okay, you know, I really should have checked the calendar before I did before I tried to do this introduction where I referenced the thing that I I'm saying came out last week, but might actually have come out like no 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 okay okay. I got it right. I got it right. I should never have doubted myself. Uh, Last week, we did an episode about inflation, and we told maybe half that story. And the part of it that we didn't tell, you know, we we, we got through the the, most of the part about like, you know, what 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 this sort of theory of inflation that the people at Strange Better developed. We got through what it was. What we didn't really talk about was what happened next, which is a very, very interesting set of sort of maneuvers that happened where this theory started spreading through a bunch of very disparate academic circles and, you know, sort of like economic circles and different political circles that usually don't have anything to do with each other, but we're all, I don't know, taking, taking things in very interesting directions and to talk about how, 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 how this sort of supply chain theory of inflation like spread through the worlds and all of this very, very interesting, somewhat bizarre stuff that happened next. Uh, we once again have Steve Mann and John Michael Cologne, who are co-editors of Strange Matters. Uh, yeah, Steve, GMC, welcome back to the show. Thanks for having us. Hey. Yeah, I'm glad, gl- glad, glad we could have you two back and glad we get to talk about the really, really interesting, somewhat strange uh, things that happened next, which was, yeah, a lot of people started picking up your theories and starting to work with them. Yeah. So I was wondering if you could talk a bit about, I guess like how that kind of first started and how people first started sort of coming to you for stuff. Yeah. Um, like last year. So last year when um, the first of these pieces came out notes toward a theory of inflation, 
we got like a really good response in general from it. And it was kind of provoking discussions between groups of um, economists and like readers of econ stuff on Twitter and stuff like that, who otherwise wouldn't have really been talking to each other. But suddenly having a different theory of inflation, one that was like a lot different than what sort of like the people who thought it would be super transitory or the people who thought it was like purely a monetary phenomenon or something like that, like having that option sparked good conversations. And it eventually led to some writers approaching us who were sort of inspired by those conversations. And uh, particularly, a few of them really wanted to follow up on like specific key, like either points from the paper or follow some of the implications uh, as far as they think they could take them. Um, so one such paper, uh, oh, and by the way, uh, just as a refresher, the original theory that is laid out in part one of this uh, this series that we're doing is essentially saying that um, inflation has a tendency to propagate along supply chains first and then through supply chain networks secondarily. And uh, so it's it's saying it's essentially that that's, that's how it propagates. It starts in supply chains. Um, things like bottlenecks along production processes have give the price setters, who are people at companies, socially acceptable reasons to eventually, if they need to, raise prices. And but they but that generally pricing managers refrain from raising prices unless that like every other lever they've pulled essentially has not worked. So like people took that theory and wanted to follow up on it. And so one author who did that was Alex Vicolo, who approached us and they, he essentially wanted to do an updated version of the pricing manager survey that um, we found really helpful in writing those initial pieces. So we, like uh, in my piece, no sort of theory of inflation, I, I relied upon uh, like a wealth of pricing manager surveys that showed that where they asked these pricing managers under what circumstances would you raise prices and they sort of went through each scenario of that uh, over the decades, starting in the 30s and going into the 90s and 2000s. In order to not have a replication crisis, like we need more and more studies, right? Like this is a that's that's a phenomenon across social sciences and elsewhere. Um, so you want to have good replication studies. One way to do that is to have an updated pricing manager survey that talks to like sort of modern corporations in the the 2020s. So are they still concerned about some of the same things? Are they not? Are there innovations in pricing that we should know about? And so Alex Vicolo, who's a financial journalist um, by trade, he went and interviewed some managers at uh, Walmart and other uh, big companies and some, and some smaller ones and found that, like broadly speaking, a lot of the same issues are at play. So companies have cost plus market pricing as kind of their bedrock. And from there, they develop some innovations such as like so-called dynamic pricing, <laughs> where they have the, uh, like if you're a larger company who knows that they are viewed as a price leader, you have some uh, 
leeway in responding to sales forecasts and changing your pricing like Walmart does with they have like everyday low prices, that type of thing. And if you're a grocery store and one of your competitors is Walmart, sort of on the flip side, you might start developing indexes of prices set by Walmart or like one of the other big like behemoth chains, knowing how important they are to the overall supply chain network and and uh, knowing how important they are for the demand for groceries. Like, like if wherever Walmart goes, many people have no choice but to follow them in terms of their pricing schedules. And so that's another thing that is going on. Like people are developing just entire price indices of like Walmart or Costco or Sam's Club or who have you. Yeah, and that was something that's, I think, interesting in terms of like the – the the difference between the way that like economists think about sort of price and the difference between and how it's actually getting set, which is like a lot of it a lot of it very much seems to be like if you are if you are like the largest company in a market, like if you are like Walmart, right? You have this incredible ability to sort of like like you you, you have this ability to like like force people force your like downstream or like I guess upstream suppliers to like sell it to you at low at lower prices because you have this enormous sort of like you know amount of buying power that like you know if you're like if you're like a smaller thing you 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 don't necessarily like you know like like so the the same company will charge like another grocery store more for like the same thing because Walmart Walmart has an ability to sell it at a lower price than if I, if I'm remembering this right I'm getting I'm getting I'm getting strange looks. Yeah, well, it's 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 important not to mix up two separate things. One is Walmart's relationship to its suppliers and the other one yeah. is its relationship to its competitors, right? So yeah, yeah, the yeah. the supplier bit, you were totally right on on the right track. It's like, you know, like people who supply Walmart with um with products because Walmart is such a big customer. If you get the Walmart contract and you're a small producer or a medium-sized producer, like you're set, right? Because like, you know, then, then you can basically just like, you know, they can even be your only customer in many cases, but that comes at a cost, which is that you sell at the price that Walmart dictates. Otherwise they'll just tell you to, 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 to fuck off basically. And you know, it's not only price, it's also the, the quality you have to hit the standards. And oftentimes what these firms that are like the big important firms, uh, so-called nuclear firms, in a supply chain do is that they set those standards like very rigidly and you have to be certified with them. So McDonald's does this, for example, you know, like all those poultry farmers or whatever um, who supply the chickens for the chicken McNuggets, they have to go through this extremely rigid process in order to be able to qualify to be a McDonald's certified supplier or whatever, because that's how they keep the product standardized, even though they're not in-house. Um and then the other thing that you were alluding to, which is in Volcola's piece, is the relationship to competitors. So obviously Walmart's able to keep things cheap all the time in their famous everyday low prices because because basically those they have economies of scale. You know, there's this notion, I think common sense for a lot of people, especially those who don't have a lot of business experience, is that the more that you make of something, the more expensive it's gonna be. But actually, it's almost the exact opposite. Any firm that has survived like over a period of time being able to make more and more of something has generally found ways of making more and more of the same thing using fewer inputs and less labor. Like, you know, and that's something that happens through automation, but it's also something that happens through administrative innovation and through um and sometimes through less than than nice things, right? Through through through, you know, 
Amazon warehouses where people aren't allowed to take bathroom breaks or through sort of like, you know, coercive measures that they can do because they've found a nice little spot in the economy that lots of people are depending on them and they can dictate terms. But whatever it is, you know, as firms get bigger, it actually gets cheaper to make more of their kind of thing. So people in a bodega can't match Walmart's prices for everything from like hamburgers to detergent, right? Because for them, it's more expensive to produce or to acquire. So what they do instead, knowing this, and they're able to survive, is that they do Walmart's price and then they do a markup over Walmart's price. So in the same way that like by themselves, they would do a markup over their costs, Walmart's costs are lower and they do a markup. So they do a percentage over Walmart's markup. And as long as it basically is something that's doable in terms of cost, they do that, which means that they're basically advertising themselves to customers as the slightly more expensive, but more local, you know, more, um, you know, more uh, reliable or easier to get to. You can just walk to the corner store or whatever, you know, whatever conveniences they're kind of like justifying themselves with to the customer base. And in cities, this can be enough to keep, you know, small to medium sized, uh, you know, sort of retailers in business. Although in the suburbs, the competition is basically just all other oligopolistic firms on Walmart scale, like, uh, you know, Wegmans or uh, in, in Florida, it'll be something like Publix, you know, and, and that kind of thing. So, um, Generally, uh, what Vocola was discovering was – I want to just emphasize Steve's point about replication. Like, you know, if if a lot of the supply chain theory depends upon a story about prices that most economists just don't believe in. Economists believe that supply and demand are automatically adjusting based on changing prices and that those adjustments determine in turn – how we spend and how we produce, you know, that's, that's supposedly how everything works. They believe in this thing called the price mechanism. Uh, the supply chain theory depends upon a story where the vast majority of prices in the economy are markup over costs or, you know, uh, beyond that, some kind of strategic decision being made in pursuit of a certain strategy. Um, but like, you know, if some studies had verified that, but then other studies refuted it, then you would have a situation like psychology where, you know, the psychologists are always saying all human beings really have a neck fetish. But then, you know, because some study of like some college students, you know, said this. And then six months later, it'll be like, actually, that failed to replicate this. It it turns out that human beings don't have a neck fetish, you know. And I'm, I'm, I'm being rude to psychology, but this is a real crisis that happened there called the replication crisis. Now, Fred Lee the, the economist who kind of like started us along this track in his famous book, Post-Keynesian Price Theory, found 71 pricing studies, and they form an appendix called Appendix B in his book, which ought to be legendary, but it's not because all this stuff is very obscure. The 71 studies from very different, like book-length studies from very different people with very different like political and economic commitments. Some of them are business school literature. Some of them are empirical studies commissioned by states or by corporations on how corporate management works. Some of them are by like Marxist economists. Some of them are by neoclassical economists. Like, and they all converge, no matter what the biases of the peop- of, of the people involved, upon this same kind of similar cost plus administered prices model. Um, Vocolo writing. Now in the present day, not in the period that Lee was talking about, which is roughly from the 30s to roughly the 90s, like, you know, he's talking about the 2020s. He just went out and started talking to pricing managers and capitalists and all this other stuff. And lo and behold, he found the exact same thing. So the the, the evidence base, the empirical evidence base for the underlying basis of the supply chain theory is very, very sound. The ball Mm -hmm. is in 
other people's court, in mainstream economists' court who want to defend the supply and demand bullshit and, and the price mechanism bullshit to, to prove us wrong because, frankly, the, the, the weight of the evidence is so strong that they're the ones uh, who, have the, um, who have to prove their case, not the other way around. You know, the, 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 uh, what's it called when, you, when you've got the um, – you know, the, 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 I think the, the, the presumption of – of, the burden of proof. Thank you. <laughs> the burden of proof is on their side. Yeah, and so something else I think is really interesting from that Vicolo piece is that, like, you know, th- there is a bit in there about firms that try to do this sort of, like, like in real time reacting to supply and demand stuff. And it's like Uber. And, and if you look at Uber, it's like, okay, so Uber has a couple things. One, they don't have, like, the thing that they're, like, they, they don't really have a supply chain. Really, A, B, they don't make any money. They never make money. They will never make money. And the third thing that's really interesting about it is that, like, that kind of pricing, like, you know, if 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 you have a, some people who go in ideologically and are like, we're going to build an algorithm to, like, try to have pricing respond to demand or whatever, it, like, it fucking sucks and everyone hates it because it means that, like, you know, suddenly, like, when you actually need a thing, it's unbelievably expensive. And it, it pisses people off, like – most most people who have to deal with actual like the normal things that a business do don't do, and the only people who do it are like the insane tech people, who are like, in in like it, it, I don't know it. I almost want to call it like intensely ideological and also assholes and also don't make any money, which is just, it, I don't know it, it, it's it's I, I think it's kind of a coincidence, but it is just very funny to me that the, the people who actually try to use the neoclassical like pricing theory it sucks and everyone hates them. Yeah, and uh, Vicolo kind of summarizes like the several different uh, pricing procedures that he witnessed into just say like on both. On both determining your company's costs and determining what market you, markup you should have, so the cost plus markup, you need to you need to figure out both of those pieces. It's anything but automatic. Yeah, it's a very manual process. And even I would I would go so far as to say, like Walmart has teams of tech people, yes, but they're liaising heavily with the finance department and sales and marketing. To determine what is an appropriate margin based on historical, like in industry and sub-industry trends, and like what is our historical cost structure for each product down to the product level, and they have so many different products that they might actually say, well, because we're selling everything to everyone, maybe some things can just be what are called lost leaders and have a negative margin because they get people in the store and then those people are there and they see other things which have higher markups. And then they buy those, and then overall they've made a, a more of a profit because they use some things that have negative margin on them. And it's like it's a really complex process. And even if an algorithm is being developed by say by say Uber to um, like dynamically price things up and down based upon events like a baseball game or something that are going on in the city, so they can get more revenue, that was still a peop- it was a group of people in a room in yeah. a very extremely manual process. Coding is extremely manual still, and like uh, liaising with like sales, marketing, finance people all all at once. Yeah, yeah. Which you is that, oh, sorry. And and the other thing is that it's like uh, supply and demand is a phrase that gets thrown around anytime that there's any kind of 
interaction between like the amount of people who want something and the amount of people and the amount of stuff that there is, right? Which is a lot of different situations. But the specific supply demand price theory that's at the core of neoclassical economics is this price mechanism story whereby, you know, companies basically all make one thing. The price of that thing is not something that is really under their control. It automatically fluctuates based on demand, which I guess you can roughly measure as sales. And like the uh, and in turn, like what the price of that thing is determines how much they produce and how much of it people buy because people's buying decisions are in some fixed functional way and people's production decisions in some fixed functional way are tied to that price. Like if you want to create an algorithm that includes as a consideration doing a discount when you haven't yet sold all the seats in an airplane in the hopes that you'll get some last minute sales, which by the way, statistically is shown to not actually help that much. Those kinds of last minute sales and discounts. Uh, I, I mean, I suppose in a, in a, in a flight where there's a time limited thing, it might work better, but for a typical product, it doesn't move the dial very much in terms of sales, which is why Walmart pursues an everyday low prices strategy, uh, just keeping prices down in general. So you don't do sales and discounts, which don't move the dial much, but like, you know, that's a strategic pricing decision that you've chosen to make because you think that it might move the dial in some way and you experiment it with it and see if it works or whatever. That's not the automatic law-like functional relationship that is supposed to exist according to neoclassical theory between supply, demand, and prices. People will say that the algorithm is about supply and demand, but that's not really how it works that's it's it's not the same thing as the theory right it's just a pricing system that takes into account among many other variables and usually not as the primary thing whether or not for example uh there is available available slack in the in the you know in in what you're producing to be able to get some last minute sales if you do a discount or something like that like or like Steve was saying, like, you know, there's a there's a game today, so you can do surge pricing because people are gonna you know that a bunch of people are going to 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 want to get in the game, so you're basically just price gouging uh based on this opportunistically based on this event that's happening or whatever. Like like yeah, you can do that and you can say that it's pricing that tries to take into account supply and demand, but it's not the supply demand price mechanism of neoclassical theory. And also as Vokolov, like you know, finds out, it attempts to do this are very, very mixed in their success at best. You know, basically, people who are trying to do it are like, yeah, maybe it could work, and then they try it, and nine times out of ten, it doesn't work very well. So they go back to some variation on a cost plus model, you know, or a price leadership model, or something like that. You know, the kinds of methods that Lee discusses. Mm -hmm. Yeah, I mean, the, the customer goodwill that you kind of put at risk with these more dynamic pricing models is, like, often a little too risky. Like, even for big companies like Uber. Like, there's been a backlash against Uber for doing that. Absolutely. The only reason they can maybe get away with it has been because uh, they have access to infinite finance. But yeah, how I mean, long that, is that going to last? Yeah, like, and that, that, that's another thing that's interesting. Like, you know, this is this is, to some extent, like, a different economic question, but... Like you do at some point have to ask the question, like to, to, to what extent can you learn things about the economy based on companies that 
don't have a revenue model or the revenue model is they will continue to be handed piles of money by like the same seven billionaires who they've conned. And that's like a, I think there's an interesting interplay of how dependent you are on actually making, like actually having revenue be the source of like the continuing (laughs) existence of your company and how ideological you can be about running. Do do you have a game firm? <laughs> yeah. Well, it's it's actually very funny that you say this because one of the people that uh Vocolo talks to is this guy Cohen. Um I can't find his first name right now and I don't want to scroll up, but um somebody whose last name is Cohen uh is quote unquote more skeptical of the uh of the dynamical pricing. And he says, I think it's a sexy idea and probably it has a lot of intellectually valuable pathways, except when it crashes into the sensibility of the customer, he said. <laughs> It could create a universe of very inconsistent prices across categories and time, which I don't think human beings are going to align to. These dynamic models need common sense judgment attached to them, which is not always necessarily available. Now, this is a very diplomatic statement by somebody who's formerly (laughs) of Sears Canada. Now, I find this very funny because there's a kind of subtext here. Vokola doesn't get into it, but Sears Canada, obviously kind of related to Sears In the 90s, Sears had a CEO who was like this ultra libertarian, you know, he basically (laughs) believed that the problem with the free market is that it's not free enough, right, at the height of neoliberalism. So he's really pissed off about the fact that inside the corporation, there's no free market. It's all a planned economy. Yeah. Um, you know, which is which is true. There's no there's no market exchanges in there. Like it's all allocations. Like okay, we have this goal, so we're gonna allocate these workers to this place, and blah 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 blah. You know. And and we're and and uh, and you know anything that the company owns, they just use it to pursue their goals. He wanted everything inside the company to have a yeah. price, <laughs> so that everything could just be you know bought. And this is this kind of like mad scientist experiment done on this like very old American corporation. But somehow, I guess it was the nineties. You know, people were coked up on this kind of thing. They tried it. And it was a catastrophic failure. It's actually yeah. generally seen as contributing to the end of Sears as a as a major player in retail. Um, and it's like like so it shows. So I think that the fact that this person very diplomatically from Sears is like maybe this doesn't work. Yeah. <laughs> you know, I, I might be born of more experience than 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 not. You know. Yeah. Okay. We have, we have to go to an ad break, but before we do that, I do, I want to tell one more insane ninety. Like people in the nineties really really had market brain in a way that's like difficult to understand now and you can even see this kind of through obama like they really have market brain and like i think the most market brain thing anyone ever did was the 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 i think it was the army joint chiefs of staff brought in like a group of economists who were you know like who were doing the whole like okay we like how how can we make how can we use the market to make the army run more efficient and the first proposal they put down on the table is we're going to have each depart each like uh like each like section, like what's the technical term? We're gonna have each branch of the military bid for control of who of who gets control of the nuclear weapons. And <laughs> there's a bunch of just like five star generals sitting at this table going, like, what the fuck are you guys talking about? And they just kicked them out. And that and that was the end of, the, of like yeah, but that that was like like peak, absolute peak 90s brain of like like these these people thought you could solve terrorism by like having futures markets on like where te- when terrorist attacks would happen. Like I it was it, these people were wild. None of this stuff worked. Um, unlike the products and services that uh, you're gonna you're gonna now hear ads for. Step into the world of power, loyalty 
and luck. I'm gonna make him an offer he can't refuse. With family, cannolis, and spins mean everything. Now, you wanna get mixed up in the family business. Introducing The Godfather at ChompaCasino.com. Test your luck in the shadowy world of The Godfather slot. Someday, I will call upon you to do a service for me. Play The Godfather, now at ChampaCasino.com. Welcome to the family. VGW Group, no purchase necessary. Voidware prohibited by law. See terms and conditions, 18 plus. I don't understand what the big fat ones are. You don't put those inside of you, do you? I mean, you do? Yes. This is a show about women. Okay, so I just reapply my lip gloss after eating a delicious lunch. We are headed back now to European political systems class at Baruch College. Woo! Finally, a show about women that isn't just a thinly veiled aspirational nightmare. That's it. That's actually the name of the show. It's not hosted, not narrated. We're just dropping into a woman's world. It's like reality TV on the radio. I found out when my dad was gay when I was 10. We were in a convertible on the 405 freeway, listening to the B-52s. And looking back, I should have said, this is gay. This is already all gay. <laughs> Listen to Finally a Show on the iHeartRadio app, Apple Podcasts, or wherever you get your podcasts. This week, the Weedian House. It's election time, and voting patterns have shown sluggishness during local elections. This episode, I'm hopeful that this will not be the case when you hear my conversations with the candidates I spoke with. How about this? Sometimes the issue is it costs too much money to live in Los Angeles. There's this attitude that, well, I've done it, why can't you? And so there really is a disconnect. And my interview with Dr. Cornell West. Do we have what it takes to acknowledge the rich humanity and creativity in our precious unhoused brothers and sisters? Listen to Weedy and Howls on iHeartRadio app, Apple Podcasts, or wherever you get your podcasts. And we're, we're back from these fine products and services. Uh, if you're... If... if if the thing you are doing right now is you have your finger on the button, we are about to message Sophie about the fact that we have gold ads again. Like, please don't. Like, please leave Sophie alone. Oh my god. Uh, I think we, we've gotten we've gotten a little we've we've gotten sort of into the weeds of like guess like the kind of research stuff that's been produced. But I wanted to move on. I think to some of the some of the other like kinds of like I don't know ki- ki- kinds of discourse and kinds of sort of work that's been produced out of this. Yeah, so Vicola's piece, I think, was uh, was very, very accomplished, and it adds to this proud tradition of pricing surveys, like we've been saying. But the um, the piece that I would say ended up having the biggest impact in the sense that it really kind of started getting followed up on by a lot of people, and it caught a lot of attention, was Tim Demetrios' piece. So a little about Tim, he's an economist uh, based in... Australia, and I should remember the name of his university, but it was the University of uh, something, and it and it starts with W, and it's a very well, long well, name. Wollongong. There, there we go. Yeah. University of Wollongong. Yes, yeah. um, and um, and he's a, uh, a a a political economist. He does a lot of stuff uh, pertaining to uh, kind of like international relations type stuff, but he also comes at economics from a particular perspective. So we mentioned last time that there's these, the the orthodoxy in economics is this one school called the neoclassicals who believe in the supply and demand stuff and along with a whole bunch of other dogmas. 
Then there's a bunch of dissident heterodox schools, and there's a whole bunch of these. Um, and one of them is called the Capital as Power School, which is named after a book uh, called Capital as Power by uh, the, these uh, two professors called Bickler and Nitzen. And, uh, and it has a lot of things to say about a lot of subjects. But so Capital as Power is a book that says a lot of things on a lot of different subjects, but at its core is the idea that what makes the capitalist system tick is the process of capitalization uh, and that that process of capitalization is controlled by certain people and their control over that process is the basis of the entire economic system. Um, That's very heady stuff. It tends not to have to do with what we're going to be talking about, but it informs the perspective that Demuzio comes from. Now, Demuzio saw... Steve's brilliant essay on the supply chain theory of inflation was very inspired by it because there are certain affinities between the framework that we're coming from uh, in this kind of research and the fr- and the capitalist power framework. They don't agree 100% on everything, but there's a lot of common ground there. So he basically hopped aboard to say, well, why don't we talk about interest rates? Because remember, the main upshot of Steve's uh, – of Fred Lee's administered prices – theory and then and then by extension Steve's theory about inflation is that inflation is not about money it's about prices um, and in order to understand inflation you have to understand why people set the prices that they do and why prices across the economy will go up at any given moment because it's people who set prices not the market not the money supply and not any of these other sort of automatic general macroeconomic things it's a microeconomic decision made by particular people within particular institutions with the ability to pull the lever on particular prices right? So the interest rate is a price. You know, it's a, to, 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 it's a very important price too because oh, – we, okay, well, we, should, we should back up for a second and explain what when, – when you say the interest rate, you should explain what that is because I well, think yeah, it's that's, under-explained. <laughs> yeah, <laughs> yeah, yeah, no, that's, yeah. That's, that's totally exactly where I was going because it, it, there's actually many interest rates out there yeah. in the economy. When we talk about the interest rate, what we tend to be talking about is the interest rate that is set – at the central bank of the country that control, like uh, of, of the currency under discussion, right? That is basically uh, an interest rate that sets the price for credit for loans in the rest of the economy. And it's basically, you can see it as a supply chain, even though it's not a physical one. And it's basically the main cost for banks that want to borrow, you know, and they then have to set a markup over that cost as the price for anyone who wants to borrow from them, which includes other banks, but also includes end consumers and firms. So that's basically, I mean, I'm, I'm oversimplifying and Steve yeah, probably yeah, has a more nuanced <laughs> version of this. <laughs> but that's the that's the, the basics. Yeah, yeah, banks, just like any company, need to determine both their cost structure to the extent that they, they are able to themselves and their markup. And the markup is they like banks have costs just like anyone. Uh, one of their principal costs is the the rate of interest that they pay on deposits of their customers in order to get them to to get new customers in. Like that's one of their main services that they provide is uh, checking checking accounts and savings accounts. And like so, how much interest are you is a bank willing to set on its uh, savings account is like an important decision that's like one part of its cost structure but where people if the federal reserve were to raise its federal it's a uh, the federal funds rate it's uh 
principal policy rate up to what they have now, five and a half percent or so, uh, when it was less than one percent only a year ago, uh, in order to compete with all of the other products, which are uh, based upon this so-called risk-free rate of return that uh, the central bank offers, that um, that governments use to like set the rate of things like uh, treasury treasury bills and stuff. Like eventually, if you're a bank, you have to start charging higher and higher interest rates. Sorry, you have to start offering higher and higher interest rates on your savings accounts. And likewise, you need to like you need to start charging higher interest rates on the products that are your actual money makers, like mortgages and uh, home equity lines of credit and that sort of thing. And so, like the the cost so the cost structure of a bank will shift as the Federal Reserve is changing its policy rate, and so too will its margin over time as it competes with other banks for like a narrowing pool of qualified mortgage applicants, and also for people who are willing to shop around for for where to keep their deposits in a way that they previously they weren't because there was no sort of differential in interest rates at all. It was just being held steady. Yeah, absolutely. So the 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 key thing to understand, and by the way, up to now, Steve and I have been describing what we regard as the real world. Like everything that we've just described, we we can see it in action, like in the world, right? Like if the Fed raises its interest rate, effectively what that means is that this whole supply chain of people lending to other people who lend to other people who lend to other people, the cost of lending has essentially increased, which will eventually lead to a rise in the cost in the cost of lending to people downstream until for end consumers, which is basically like firms and households trying to get a loan from the bank, those loans are going to be more expensive. And conversely, if the Fed's interest rate goes down, those prices will tend to go down as well. Um, yeah. If you want, but like crucially, none of it is just automatic. That's yes, absolutely true. Yeah. There's even a, there's, just just because it's a bank doesn't mean it's any different than the story that Vicola was laying out for retailers. Mm-hmm. That's exactly right. the 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 Fed's rate is a very important rate because it's basically the first uh, the first one in this chain, and it's a cost for pretty much everybody who's doing business in dollars. But that doesn't mean that it in some simple way just controls everything else. You can hope that it controls if you're if you're the central banker. Um, but of course, all these firms are making their own decisions based on their own reasons. Um, so you know they, they can make all sorts of decisions based on their priorities and based on uh, like like all sorts of things. Now, uh, by the way, if you want the more detailed version of this story that actually talks about the different agents at each step of this process in much more detail, you should check out Perry Merling's work on this. And there's even online uh, online lectures that kind of get into the nitty gritty, uh, which I have absorbed and then since completely forgotten the details of. So I would need to watch them again to actually be able to name the names. But the point is that so far, so real, right? Now, here's where things get a little BS. Remember that the mainstream theories of inflation are all basically descended in their DNA, even though they've been moving further and further away from it, from the old school quantity theory of money. The idea that the amount of money in the economy basically determines the price level. 
more money that there is circulating, the less that money is worth because there's too much of it. So the price of it goes down and the price of money basically determines like how much your money is able to buy. Now, people have been moving away from that towards theories that get more realistic, but still retain the basic structure where the money supply is the main thing that matters. And they'll say, for example, that it's the amount of money circulating in people's pockets relative to the amount of goods being produced, such that if too much money is chasing too few goods, like there isn't enough supply to meet the demand, and that causes something, although people disagree on what, that causes prices to be bid upwards. Um, and that's called the demand pull theory. It's the dominant theory that most economists, neoclassical mainstream economists that you talk to today, um, will will uh, will peddle to you. The ones who are not orthodox monetarists, they still believe in this, which means that they still think that you have to, when there's an inflationary event, you have to attack the money supply. P, uh, now, from them, from their point of view, it doesn't have to do with the absolute amount of money circulating. It has to do with the amount of money in people's pockets relative to the amount of stuff that can be bought. So if there's too much money in people's pockets, how do people use their money? They spend it on goods and services that are produced by firms. Um, so if you reduce that amount of money, that basically the only way that you can do it is by putting people out of work, right? You know, you, you, you buy, uh, because then they don't get the wages that, which they would have spent on stuff that, you know, the factories and Walmart and everything else, the agriculture and whatever, uh, all the stuff that, that gets made, um, the goods and services. Now, they think that if you raise the interest rate, it makes the cost of finance more expensive. Uh, some firms are depending on finance. So if that cost increases for them, they're going to go under. And when they go under, people get unemployed. When people get unemployed, they have less money in their pockets, which means that they're spending less, which means that some other firms go out of business and then those people go unemployed. Now, the full version of this is like the crash of 2008 or 1929, where suddenly a whole bunch of people are unemployed and a whole bunch of companies are empty. They don't want to go all the way with that, but they want to kind of get part of the way to that. They want to put the squeeze on the economy and get some companies put out of business and some people unemployed on the dole so that people don't have money in their pockets, so that the supposed pressure of too many people spending money on goods that are not being produced enough to meet that demand, the demand pressure goes down. So therefore it equilibrates and inflation prices, uh, inflation ceases because prices go down too. Because the idea is that there's a law-like relationship between demand and prices such that if demand goes down, the price will go down. The actual explanation for this is will vary depending on the thing they basically accepted as a religious orthodoxy and then different economists justified in different ways. But that's why they're trying to raise interest rates so that basically people get thrown out uh, of work and that'll cause prices magically to go down. Now, as we discussed, the actual cause of the inflation was an exogenous shock based on like the chip shortage, the labor shortage, and key things like agriculture, the container shortage, and the war in Ukraine. Uh, causing increases in grain prices that have caused cost increases that firms tried to hold off price increases as long as they could, but then they couldn't. And then they traveled down the supply chain and a whole bunch of prices across the economy went up. So we know that because we have looked at the news stories that, you know, and talked to people at, at these different companies. And by we, I don't mean strange matters. I mean like, you know, journalists or whatever. And like, you know, that's what they say. 
And yet, nevertheless, they're trying to make the interest rates go up to throw people out of work and partially induce a recession in the hopes that that will drive prices down. But and they can't even get that right. That's right. They haven't actually been able to get unemployment. <laughs> they haven't been able to get unemployment up either. So it's yeah, like it doesn't work exactly. in either direction. Exactly. Well, and, and what's really funny is that Demuzio basically says, okay, why do people believe this? They believe it for a lot of reasons, but they think that it worked in the 70s. That's the myth, right? You ask Larry Summers, why do you think this shit will work? And Larry Summers will say, well, you might not like it. And I think he actually said things like this like a couple weeks ago. You might not like it, but this is how we got out of the crisis of the 70s. If we hadn't done the Volcker shock, which is basically the same thing, they raised interest rates through the up the Yazoo, um, you know, like like we and hadn't induced that unemployment or whatever, prices would never have come down. But you see, Demuncio did something that you're not supposed to do, which is that he actually checked up yeah. on the relationship <laughs> between <laughs> between interest rates and prices. And what he found was uh, that basically there's either that I, I, the way that I explain his essay is that there's a strong version of his argument and there's a weak version. The weak version is definitely true. The strong version is speculative. So he charted it and he found that there is absolutely no inverse relationship between interest rates and prices. They raise interest rates. They raise interest rates. The prices keep going up. They're not coming down, right? And the prices don't start to go down until oil, because remember the oil shock caused by the uh, the war in the Middle East between um, Israel and um, well, and uh, and Egypt and a whole bunch of other places caused OPEC to raise their prices in order. For yeah, it's, okay, I'm gonna I'm gonna I'm gonna I'm gonna point in a thing, which is that it the actual story behind that is slightly more complicated. Which is that like, okay, so to to, to be completely 100 accurate about this, OPEC had a meeting where they decided to raise prices. And then the war started and then like like two weeks afterwards and then they kind of tacked their explanation on to the back of the price increase they'd already decided on. Oh, OK. You know, which is. Yeah. Can. So th- this is this, this is the thing that like. I don't know. There, there, there was a uh, there was an oil historian who went back and like spent a bunch of time looking through the records of OPEC and shit and trying to figure out what the actual sequence of events was, but it, 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 it is true that like one of the things behind keeping OPEC together so that it could increase the price of oil was like the, like what was their sort of solidarity in the face of the opposition to the war, but also it's slightly more complicated than that. And I want to, I want to, I want to put that on the record just because uh, the oil knowers will get mad at us. If we... Yeah. yeah. I mean, although, although that, that, that's the version of it that like, like 99% of accounts will give you. It's just slightly, not quite exactly what was happening. Yeah, I gotta read that book. Yeah, I think it was. God, I'm trying to remember what book. I, 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 I think it was in. I think it was in Carbon Democracy. Maybe I'm like eighty percent sure. Sorry, I, I read like four books about oil and coal in like incredibly rapid succession, like several years ago, and sometimes I have trouble remembering exactly which one which thing is from. But yeah. Although I I, I want to say sorry I guess I, I want to say one other kind of interesting thing about that that makes specifically trying to use the interest rates arguments about like it, I think it is it is pretty clear that raising the interest rates directly would like did not immediately did wasn't the thing that brought down prices I think there's like an interesting there's like a weird thing going on there too because the like almost all, like when when economists tend to look at this what they tend to look at with the interest rate rises was what was happening in the US economy and 
the other yeah, the other thing that the Volcker shock did was it raised the interest rates on it raised it raised the interest rates on all of these adjustable rate loans that like all of these countries like all over the world had. And those economies got fucking obliterated. And that actually Absolutely. I think I I think actually that there there is an argument that like my, my, my argument would be I think it, it kind of probably prevented prices maybe from going up more, but it did that because it it prevented any more OPEX from forming. And just like absolutely annihilated any kind of political movement to like have pricing be set by mm. like raw material producers rather than by like countries that do, that do production. And th- th- this is the kind of like separate thing. But like th- this is I, I think I, I think the moral of my story with this before we get back to sort of like the, the, the I, I don't know, the, 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 the other arguments about this is that like that moment was such a fucking shit show there were so many things going on it's so complicated it is absolutely nuts to try to base literally your entire theory about how you stop inflation by raising interest rates on one event in like probably the most complicated economic crisis any like we've ever had and yep. yeah and because like it it, it 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 did like the volcker shock did a lot of things that weren't what volcker or not, not necessarily what, not, not what Volcker was trying to do, but it did a lot of things that aren't what economists talk about when they talk about what the Volcker shock did. Like it, it had all of these incredibly like powerful political ramifications that they just don't put in the equations because it doesn't feel like how how do how do you mathematically model like the collapse of the like the, like the, the collapse of the non-aligned movement and like the third world movement? Like you you can't, right? And so they just sort of like wave their hands and pretend that it was just like directly it caused an, it caused more unemployment and the unemployment brought the inflation rate down. Yeah, it's interesting to think of the global effects of the Volcker shock as like you have uh, um, countries who are dependent upon USD finance uh, suddenly are facing a much stronger dollar. So if they didn't already have dollars, that's a huge problem. Yeah, like and, and again, yeah, and again, also just like like just literally the interest rates on their loans like increased by like twenty percent, and that's like you know like you, <laughs> you're it doesn't really matter what your economy is you can't it, I don't know it's it's unbelievably difficult to survive something like that. Yeah, on on the forex dimension and just on regular lending terms in dollar lending anyway, it's going to get way tougher. Yeah, but even domestically, like Demetrio superimposes the oil price onto the inflation and like the the inflationary crises of the 70s and early 80s it was a double it was a double uh, dip if you remember and so like the first time the fed chairman who preceded paul volcker uh was blamed for not raising interest rates during an inflationary crisis because the emerging theory said that maybe that would be a good idea and so like the monetarists had like their one moment after that to say like they where they became uh, more than simply an academic movement and became like briefly hegemonic with with the the Volcker uh, interest rate rise that happened to like in in nineteen seventy five or so when the oil price was about fifteen dollars per barrel. That's when inflation and the oil price start to move closely in conjunction with each other, going into nineteen eighty which is also when the interest rates are being raised more like give or take nine to 18 months or so. And the economic historians, the neoclassical economic historians will 
um, forget about the supply chain pressures like the oil price, which has nothing to do with the Fed. And like uh, that happened in this in- inflationary when oil prices were up to like 110 during our current inflationary crisis, this exact debate debate was taking place again. Yeah, which, yes. which like where it's like I mean, there's like all of the prices that the Fed has no control over. It's like, well, if you ignore those ones, then actually our theory is like kind of getting close to being right. And the yeah. worst part, <laughs> the worst part is that the interest rate correlates positively with yeah. prices. This is the so insane like, thing. So like, <laughs> so like, so like, the interest rate when it's high, theory expects that prices will be low. But actually, and, 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 and like, even if you adjust for like a delay where maybe like the prices get low afterwards, like, no, that's not what happens. It's like the interest rate goes up and prices go up too. Prices go down and the interest rate goes down. <laughs> you know, like, 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 yeah. it's like, yeah. It's and this, like, it, and, and Demuzio's like, um, it hurt when he eventually he superimposes oil price fed funds federal funds rate and inflation all in one chart. It's just like this epic wave of all three going up at once. (laughs) Yeah. Like almost in lockstep. And then oil goes back down and then interest rates go back down and then prices go back down. (laughs) Yeah. Actually, I think prices first before interest rates. Let me see. I I, I can't Uh, remember. Oh, yeah. Yeah. Like inflation crests like somewhat concurrently with the federal funds and then um, the – Oil price eventually falls like like shortly thereafter. Yeah, and and this 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 gives you a disaster, right? Because you like okay, so the the you you will get neoclassical economists who are like, oh my god, oh no, all these idiots are saying that uh, uh in- increasing the increasing the interest rate actually increases prices. It's not what's happening. It's like you, you get into this mess where you you have to figure out. The, the neoclassical explanation, right, is that like okay, well the the reason it looks like. The fund rate increasing increases prices is because you do that in in response to the inflation happening, right? But like you can also just very easily look at this as like a panic index, basically, like yeah. where you know it's like okay, well prices go up and then the Fed panics and so they they raise their rate. It doesn't and, and, and you know it like it, it, it's it's this is one of those things where like the, the neoclassical economists have invented a mechanism that like allows them to explain their own actions in a way that's plausible enough that they can call anyone that they've, they've gotten enough hegemony that can say anyone who says they're wrong is just like nuts. Oh, but yeah. they're they, not it, right. Yeah. And also it's, it's, it's entirely possible that not only are they not right, they're literally perfectly exactly wrong. Yeah. And that, yeah. They have, which, they trot out the, like the, the econometric jargon, long and variable lags when people say, when are interest rates going to cause unemployment to rise? When are interest rates going to cut down on inflation by themselves and not some other supply chain phenomenon? And they say like, well, the monetary transmission mechanism has long and variable lags, which means that like nine to 18 months from now, it will settle down and then we'll know it's from interest rates. Trust us. Right. And the thing is that like even their purported explanations are demonstrably false. So theoretically, the mechanism by which this happens is that the monetary the, – the, the, the money supply will go down. Well, yeah. M2 is our best estimate for the monetary – for the money supply uh, and it's not even a perfect one. You know, interest rates go up, interest rates go down, M2 keeps going up. And this is over the course of like from the 70s to the 90s, you know, like, yeah, like, it, like yeah, I'm looking at another graph of Demuncio's. That's you know? another important point that like the money, the money, it doesn't even 
get the money supply down. Yeah. So like it's quite questionable whether this interest rate adjustment thing even works at all on its own terms because all the evidence says that there's at least – and this is what I mean by the weak version of Demetrius' yeah. argument. The, all the evidence shows that there's at least no relationship between interest rates and the price level, that there is like no relationship whatsoever. It basically just is useless for controlling prices one way or the other. Um, the uh, Now, the strong version of Demetrius' argument <laughs> is he, he takes, the, he takes the, the, the fact that interest rates track prices very seriously, and he's like, well, what if – Making finance more expensive actually raises business costs and businesses choose to respond to it by raising their prices. You know, what if you what, what if you actually by raising the interest rate are contributing to inflation? Now, this is this is kind of how we framed the whole article in our title. Editors make titles, not not um not not writers do interest rate hikes worsen inflation and i remember showing this to some of my friends who were finance bros and they were like what what are you talking about this is a crazy idea um but like it makes a lot of sense because if you look at things as a supply chain at the very least rising financial rising cost of loans would be a higher cost for at least some businesses theoretically they could respond to that by raising their prices now in actual fact it probably, at least my solo opinion, is this is a small effect if it exists at all. It's much more plausible that there is simply no relationship between yeah, interest rates and and the general yeah, price level. Yeah, yeah, and that and that and that and that like the the fact that they're correlated is just a, is just a panic index on the on the on the on behalf of the Fed that they just get scared and do this thing and it does it has, it has no effect. But like you know they they've got to press the panic button. Yeah, I think I'm. For a variety of reasons, I I think I'm a weak form Demutziest on this point. <laughs> uh, I think like like especially these days, there's so many other like a relatively small percentage of commercial and business credit is variable rate to begin with these days. More of it is fixed rate, and like especially for more well certainly for mortgages, like uh, it's all it's like. 80% plus approaching 85% even uh, fixed rate, which will not be affected. And then businesses have other, so many other means of liquidity other than loans these days, particularly the like medium and large scale businesses like the, you know, you can go to the capital markets, private equity or the stock market and get the funding you need that um, in ways that don't, or don't depend upon what the federal funds rate is doing or only weekly depend upon it. Yes. So it's just like, there's so many other liquidity sources, especially like in the last 30 years or so, like, well, since, since the Volcker shock, basically they've like all of these like private equity and other capital markets methods for liquidity have opened up and a good deal of the debt, a good deal more of the debt as a percentage of total debt is fixed rate. So like on that basis, I'm like, all right. Well, maybe it doesn't. Maybe it doesn't uh, increase prices, but there is at the very least, it's like non-correlated. With lucky landslots, you can get lucky just about anywhere. Dearly beloved, we are gathered here today to. Has anyone seen the bride and groom? Sorry, sorry, we're here. We were getting lucky in the limo, and we lost track of time. <gasps> No, Lucky Land Casino, with cash prizes that add up quicker than a guest registry. In that case, I pronounce you lucky. 
Play for free at LuckyLandSlots.com. Daily bonuses are waiting. No purchase necessary. Void were prohibited by law. 18 plus. Terms and conditions apply. See website for details. I don't understand what the big fat ones are. You don't put those inside of you, do you? I mean, you do? This is a show about women. Okay, so I just reapply my lip gloss after eating a delicious lunch. We are headed back now to the European Political Systems class at Baruch College. Woo! Finally, a show about women that isn't just a thinly veiled aspirational nightmare. That's it. That's actually the name of the show. It's not hosted, not narrated. We're just dropping into a woman's world. It's like reality TV on the radio. I found out when my dad was gay when I was 10. We were in a convertible on the 405 freeway, listening to the B-52s. And looking back, I should have said, this is gay. This is already all gay. <laughs> Listen to Finally a Show on the iHeartRadio app, Apple Podcasts, or wherever you get your podcasts. This week, Weedian House. It's election time, and voting patterns have shown sluggishness during local elections. This episode, I'm hopeful that this will not be the case when you hear my conversations with the candidates I spoke with. How about this? Sometimes the issue is, it costs too much money to live in Los Angeles. There's this attitude that, well, I've done it, why can't you? And so there really is a disconnect. And my interview with Dr. Cornell West. Do we have what it takes to acknowledge the rich humanity and creativity of our precious unhoused brothers and sisters? Listen to Weedy and Howls on iHeartRadio app, Apple Podcasts, or wherever you get your podcasts. This caught a lot of people's attention. Like once Demuncia put this paper out there, this is one of our most successful essays uh, because it got picked up by a bunch of folks. I mean, Investopedia uh, cited it as a source, even though they <laughs> called us a blog and not a magazine. Um, you know, like like uh, um, it, it ended up being taken up by another capital as power influenced economist, Blair Fix, who found yet more empirical evidence that there is no relationship whatsoever between in, in interest rates and and like the general price level. Um you know, and to the extent that there is, it's only because you induce a recession, you know, that, that, that puts people out of work, in which case you've basically, you know, you've in order to deal with a paper cut, you've cut off your hand. Right. And, yeah. and even then, like they can't they can't reliably get unemployment up, you know, by raising rates. So like what like what use is that even if you accept that mechanism? So they found more evidence and they got even more attention. Cory Doctorow, the uh, science fiction writer and futurist and kind of left wing uh, all around uh, public intellectual, he uh, found both Demuncia's study and Blair Fix's study and was like really excited about it. And after that, it really took off. It started getting debated all over the place. There's a heterodox economics international organization called Rethink Economics, which is all about like, you know, in, inciting pluralism in the discipline. And in their Australian blog, because they're all over the world, um, an economist called Matthew Harris um you know, uh, took up took up the controversy and basically sided with uh, with Demuncio, uh, like and uh, J. W. Mason writing in Barron's uh, also basically uh, sided with us uh, in an essay called "The Fed Can't Fine Tune the Economy." J. W. Mason's a very important uh, heterodox economist uh, who's often on the cutting edge of a lot of these kind of theoretical developments. 
Interestingly, the, the, the first fellow, though, uh, Matthew Harris uh, at Rethink Economics, he actually found a study, which I was not aware of, which is why I love these when, – when we started all these conversations all over the place, people dug up stuff that we didn't even know about. There was a study done by the National Bureau of Economic Research by two professors from the University of Chicago, but notably, they were not University of Chicago economists. They were in the University of Chicago business school. And as many people have pointed out, uh, you know, capitalists started business schools because economists are basically just propaganda. But like you actually also need people who know how the world actually works in order to run your companies. So that's why economics and business schools are two separate schools. Yeah, this, <laughs> because is, this the business- is a real – this is like a real – like I remember this on campus. This is like – this is a real thing where like if you're – if so the, the business school, if I'm remembering correctly, the business school is like is most – I think it's it, – I think it might only be a – Grad school for Hans. Let me let me look this up. Yeah, that was my memory of it. Yeah, so so th- this is a real thing because be- because the University of Chicago doesn't have an undergrad business program. You get people who want to do business who go into econ, and the econ people fucking hate them because they see them as like like they 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 they, they see them as sort of like like these like inferior like fly by night people who don't care about like the sort of deep like the deep math and like the deep sort of like, you know, like intellectual, like political pursuits of economics. They just want to like go be a business person. And this has really interesting effects because it means that like, you know, like the business school, it's not like the business school is like, like a bastion of leftists or whatever, but they don't agree on stuff a lot because they're like, like the, the, the University of Chicago economics program, it, it it produces basically two things. It produces like a bunch of people who go on to be investment bankers where you don't actually need to know how a firm works at all. Uh, and then it goes on to produce a bunch of people who become economists. And so like it's its actual sort of ideological purpose is 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 specifically it's it's a school that trains other economists right it's a school that teaches like the ruling class what to think whereas the business school is like the school that teaches and this is like this is a very 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 explicit it's it's something that like when you're there you can like watch like in practice the fact that these aren't the same thing and the fact that like you know they they they're, they're going to produce different conclusions because you know the the, the like because like because they're actual like purpose is different one is ideological the other one is like making money yes and 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 this is a great case study of it because these folks at the business school um their names are uh niels niels gormson and killian huber uh they actually went and asked companies what they do when credit gets more expensive now, according to the theory, and this is the most sophisticated theory, the theory that people at the Fed will tell you, which is, you know, you might need to put a few drinks into them first, but, you know, it's like we have to induce a partial recession in order to make it so that people have less spending money in their pockets and prices get bid down, right? Theoretically, the mechanism by which this works at the individual firm is that the firm sees that the cost of capital goes up and they invest less, you know, or just outright go out of business, right? Um, but in fact, Future investment is only weakly correlated to the cost of capital because of the limited transition into discount rates. You know, in other words, like basically there's no real effect. <laughs> so yeah. if they go around and do business yeah, com- surveys. Mm. Sorry, go ahead. Companies yeah, uh they do a a good amount 
if not perhaps most of their capital investment from cash on hand before going before seeking out finance yeah and and that and that like and that means that it doesn't have an effect and then even if you need financing there are non-debt finance so there's like equity finance either private or public that you have as an option aside alongside the debt options exactly so we go from like a situation where we published this article in 2022 right and it's got a title that for a mainstream economist, even a very sophisticated one, is unthinkable. Like, do interest rates, hikes, you know, uh, cause inflation to get worse or even just don't matter for inflation? But then suddenly, like, you have a bunch – once it gets taken up by a larger discussion, you have a bunch of quite reputable people saying the exact same thing, citing us directly. And even in one case – Six months after our article comes out, lo and behold, that a certain little-known economist writes in The Guardian, um, in fact, raising interest rates could do more harm than good by making it more expensive for firms to invest in solutions to the current supply constraints. The U.S. Federal Reserve's monetary tightening has already curtailed housing construction, even though more supply is precisely what is needed to bring down one of the biggest sources of inflation, housing costs. Moreover, many price setters in the housing market may now pass the costs of doing business onto renters. You know, So in other words, like maybe higher interest rates can actually induce price increases as the higher interest rates induce businesses to write down the future value of lost customers relative to the benefit of higher prices. To be sure, a deep recession – you know, parenthesis, like the kind of they're trying to induce. Uh, that's my parenthesis. Uh, back to the quote. A deep recession would tame inflation, but why would we invite that? You know, uh, Jerome Powell and his colleagues seem to relish cheering against the economy. Meanwhile, their friends in commercial banking are making out like bandits now that the Fed is paying uh, 4.4% interest on more than $3 trillion of bank reserve balances, blah, 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 blah. Now, this little-known economist writing for The Guardian is Joseph Stiglitz, who won the Nobel Prize (laughs) in economics. Now, does he cite our article whose talking points he's basically going through point by point? No. Does he cite any of the better-known places that cited us that are heterodox? No. He basically presents it as if it's his own idea. Now, maybe he did have this idea six months after we started a conversation has about not it had an idea in like Stinglitz has not had a single idea in like 15 years. Like that man, oh. <laughs> that, 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 that man is a transparent parent medium through which the stuff that he reads appears on a page. I'm, I'm, I'm going to be mean. I'm, I'm, si- I'm sick of Stinglitz doing this bullshit. <laughs> and you know, the worst part is like, you know, this is something that happens a lot. There's an orthodoxy that says certain things that are nonsense. The heterodoxy goes through the hard work of like figuring out the reasons why it's not true and presenting an alternative model. It's denied at first, but then increasingly it's just plagiarized, you know, perhaps accidentally, probably not, uh, you know, like, like, and then it's presented as if actually this is what the theory has always been all along, you know, and like, how can anyone differently and it's this it's this unfortunate thing because since the the neoclassicals control the discipline they control advancement through the ranks of the economists so they're always wrong and never right but they're never punished for it and they control all the levers of who gets to be an economist so it's this sort of like continual sad unfortunate thing but on the bright side we were right we were right early a bunch of people picked it up and our talking points ended up making it to very very distant and well-regarded places to the point where now it's it's 
a viable alternative that exists out there in the world in terms of like, you know, why keep raising rates? It's not doing any good. It could even do bad. And that's a talking point that I don't think would have existed if it hadn't been for Demotio's research, which depended entirely upon the supply chain theory of inflation framework that Steve developed out of Fred Lee's work, which is basically a research program that now the magazine has put out there in the world um, that uh, and, and is continuing to build up on that that actually makes it make more sense. Yeah, and I I want to just sort of like take a second to highlight like how impressive it is that this happened because like again like like a year and a half I even like 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 even like I don't know, even like a year ago right for the entire time I have been alive if you tried to say that raising interest rates raises inflation like people would have thrown bananas at you like like volleys of tomatoes like you they they would have like like you would have, you would have gotten 16 contracts <laughs> to be a professional clown like it, this was this was a thing that like you could not you couldn't even like suggest this and you know like within a pretty rapid span suddenly like stinglitz is being like huh I want this maybe this is a plausible thing and it's like oh my like i don't know i i i think it's i think it's it's really it's really impressive watching how fast I don't know, like how how fast the combinations of like reality and having an explanation of reality that actually like lines up with it has been able to change like has, has been able to actually just sort of like change what the discourse at like the highest levels of power and sort of like what what has actually been happening in in the economy like has shifted. And that's wild. <laughs> Like I, I would not have guessed that 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 was a thing that was even remotely possible, and and yet we are now here. Yeah, it, the the Overton window has shifted so far that like the idea that interest rates just have, don't seem to have any discernible effect upon the price level is kind of like becoming the base case. Yeah, yeah. <laughs> so yeah. like. The entire yeah, the entire spectrum has shifted. <laughs> it's like yeah, yeah it's very you can be funny. a strong form Demutiist and have like <laughs> uh, I'm starting to use that phrase now. By the way, uh, <laughs> and um, okay, people won't be throwing a ton of they'll, they'll still throw some things at you, but like it's it's like manageable now. <laughs> I mean, you can always point to that argument from authority, but Stiglitz says it might be so. <laughs> yeah. So you know, it's like. And yeah, then Stiglitz, yeah. who could question Stiglitz? <laughs> he won the Nobel Prize. <laughs> really weird Nobel Prize, too. Can, <laughs> we, yeah, can, we do, can we say a bit about the Nobel Prize? I've been, I've been yeah, containing yeah, myself, but I really want to. This is a whole... Bu- oh, God. The, 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 the so-called Nobel Prize in economics is not actually the Nobel Prize in economics. It's no. that there's Nobel Prizes in science and in, you know... Uh, literature and all the stuff that's administered by the Alfred Nobel organization and, and the, and the fund that he left and whatever this started in the sixties, like I think some 70 years after the Nobel started or something like that. And it was started by the Swedish central bank to imitate the Nobel prize. So technically it's the Nobel Memorial prize in economics, you see. And it's, and it's, and it's just, it's basically like peeling off the skin of the face of the Nobel prize and then wearing it, you know, and saying we're, we have a Nobel prize too. But it's and totally basically, fake. It's not a Nobel. And, <laughs> <laughs> and, you know, it puts the lotion on its skin or else it gets the hose again. Um, you know, <laughs> <laughs> and they did this specifically. There's a historian of um, 
of, of economics. Uh, oh my God, what the hell is his name? Um, the um, it's it's the it's the more heat than light guy. He's uh, oh my goodness. Uh, I cite him in the Fred Lee thing, and I can't oh, even remember oh, his Philip name. Murawski. Murawski, that's the guy. Yeah. Okay. So he actually like went and like studied the origins of it, and it turns out that they specifically did it as a scheme to only give the Nobel Prize to people who are basically like neoclassical economists. Um, and they mostly have, so sometimes they've diverged, but mostly they've done it to very reactionary economists in order to promote neoclassical economists in Europe, because it was stronger in America than it was in Europe. And in order to promote the idea of central bank independence, which is a fancy term for, uh, you know, the, the, a central bank should not need to operate under a political, uh, a democratically controlled, you know, legislature that says, actually, we don't want more unemployment because that would be bad. So don't do that. Like instead, they should have independence, the independence that allows them to technocratically decide that it's time for people to get out of work, you know, and and, and that kind of thing. So, um, you know, that's that's the story of the SoCal Nobel Prize. It's really the fake Nobel. So yeah, which I always, is, which I is call it the fake Nobel. <laughs> yeah, which is also really funny if you talk to other people. Like specifically, one one of the things that like happened to me when I was in university was like I knew a bunch of people who were like really really good at math. Like one of my friends was like 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 actual genuine prodigy was doing like like was doing like like graduate level like math in high school. And if you talk to these people and you talk to like math professors about the Nobel Prizes, they like they will like yell about it for like 20 minutes because the math is so bullshit. It's like, yeah, this guy is like the, the like the, the math involved in these Nobel Prizes are like they figured out two plus two equals four and they gave them like this fucking fake Nobel Prize. You, you look at like the Fields Medal and it's like. I don't know. Like it's 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 really nonsense. All the math people are really mad about the fact that the econ people think that they know math because they don't. And the consequence of this is you get these like you get people handing out Nobel prizes for saying shit like the economy can't miss like the market can't miss price like an like assets that are like the price of houses and then the the entire housing market immediately implodes because it was all mispriced. It's 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 a disaster. It has been. I don't know. We, we should. Uh, everyone at all times should be doing anti-fake Nobel Prize <laughs> propaganda against the economics Nobel Prize because it's 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 fake and bad, yeah, well, and we should all say it more. Uh, you know, there's in, on the heterodox side of things. There's some really promising uses of mathematical economics to create like input-output matrices, yeah, and to model like do an I/O model of the economy that. Um, the math is very much subservient to empirical data that is coming in that trains the model. And then like, like to, so much of economics is, well, data fits, data fits the model, data fits the model, like over and over again, when it should be the other way around. Yeah, absolutely. Does the model fit the data? Because if it doesn't, then you got to throw it out. Like this whole like raising interest rates is going to control prices bullshit. When has that even happened? Because theoretically it happened in the 70s, but then you look at it and <laughs> yeah. the data doesn't tell you that story. So, you know, but, but it, do they throw it out? No. Uh, um, call, like, brief brief callback to um, Fred Lee's table. Uh, table B, was it? Oh, yeah, Appendix B. Yeah, yeah, yeah. Uh, yeah is the blinder study in there? I forget. Yes, yes, yeah. it is. Oh, my God. That, that's, that's like an instance. Story. That's an instance where uh, Alan Blinder is a neoclassical economist who like he messed up and did real science <laughs> <Yeah>. <laughs> and what he found 
was was the administered price theory. Yeah, he made he made the terrible mistake of thinking that his bullshit it's theory like, would be vindicated, and then it turns out that it was not. Yeah, there's just like the, the history of intellectual thought for economics is like replete with examples where they kind of like they yeah. screw up and they actually do real science for a change and like find things like cost plus markups happening. And he tries so hard to explain it away. You know, he's like, <laughs> yeah. well, supply and demand exists. It's just that these prices are sticky because the cost of changing the price on the menu is actually too expensive. So they choose not to. And that's why prices are sticky. Yeah. They can't they can't change the stickers. <laughs> you know, it's completely yeah. insane. It's like the cost of admit there is a cost to administering prices themselves, and that's why they don't change prices like the price <laughs> mechanism from neoclassical economics would suggest. <laughs> and uh, then he went to look for the stickers and he couldn't find it. He yeah. couldn't find the cost. Right. <laughs> so he's like, well, I guess it's not <laughs> sticky because of menu costs. It's like, I wonder what it could be. What a mystery. <laughs> <sighs> okay, so we, we should we should start wrapping up because this has been this has been a very long episode already. But I wanted to ask before we go, uh what what are, what what are you all doing next, and what other incredibly uh, funny economics discourses could we expect to have giant like creators punched into in the next couple of years? So one thing we've started to work on, and we've discussed a little bit on this podcast, I believe, yeah, a while back, was uh, the importance of forex for an exchange for all sorts of macroeconomic things, like inflation being one of them. Like if you're uh, a small country that um, that does not have hegemonic monetary authority like the U.S. does to get people to use its currency, and you have to go out and import things in some other currency. How does that affect your ability to socially provision yourself as as a nation state and like do development work? And we're developing a theory of forex essentially that is um it's a it's an extension of the chartalist framework that informs MMT, but with some important criticisms about how like the central MMT insight sort of is like you can create, if you're the sovereign issuer of your own fiat currency, you can always provision enough of it to, you can always spend as much of it into existence as you need to, to do productive things. And yes, that's true. You can create infinity of your own money, but your own, not other people's money. Yeah. So other currencies, like if you're, um, like, uh, well, like Sri Lanka, for example, had this problem. Yeah, if, you're Sri, if you're Sri Lanka or Mexico or whoever, most of most of the world, basically, you need to maintain. And augment your balance of of like the the trading the major trading currencies U.S. dollars, yen, the euro, to name three, uh, and uh, have balances of those. You need to maintain your balance of payments and your balances of specific currencies in order to meet the biophysical obligations that your whatever your development strategy necessitates. Because in in most instances, not all, but most, you're going to need to like no one's going if you're Sri Lanka, no one's going to want to to transact in your currency for major 
purchases of like staple goods, you're going to need to use like dollars or euros or yen or or the yuan, perhaps. You know, who knows? Exactly. Uh, one of the major trading currencies. And this also raises the question of how a currency becomes a major trading currency, and that almost invariably takes you in two directions. One is which countries are powerful and able to industrialize yeah. and make capital goods that nobody else has that everybody wants a piece of. And two, which are the powerful imperialist great powers. Yep. And it turns out that those are the, the, the nexus that's created between imperialism, development, and the balance of payments – those three things can't even be discussed independently of each other. And the politics of what is going to be used as the – what Steve and I are tentatively calling the international means of payment. Uh, in other words, what you can use in international transactions across a whole region or across the entire planet, that is a hugely political question yeah. that all the major great powers in their inter-imperial conflict are constantly fighting over. So right now – it appears that China is attempting to make a bid for a global yuan. First, they tried to do it through the digital yuan. Now they're seemingly trying to do it through BRICS by getting the other BRICS countries to agree to a kind of yuan gold standard mirroring the Bretton Woods Agreement that was basically the dollar piggybacking off of gold uh, to reach global preeminence. Will it work? Will it not? Nobody really knows. It's, it's, it's a total mess. But in theory, that could be one way that you could suddenly have like the yuan – at least in a certain currency zone, be used as the main way of doing imports. Uh, and if the U.S. suddenly needs an import from that zone, which hypothetically, if it existed, right, they couldn't use dollars anymore. Or, or maybe dollars would be at a high disadvantage, you know, in the exchange rate between dollars and that currency at that point. Or maybe they would just be banned entirely from using dollars. They have to get it in that currency, which means that suddenly the U.S., which has basically been able to print forex to print the international means of payment for some fifty years now, would suddenly have to actually hold reserves of this thing. Now, if we have to hold reserves of it, that means that we have to sell something to the people who issue that currency. Uh, that means that we suddenly have to worry about uh, which firms are the most profitable exporters. And I bet you anything that none of our listeners know what the most important company in America would become if that situation happened. You, is it? Is it Uber? Is it... Is it is it Amazon? Is it is it is it all these like Fortune 500 companies and whatever? No, no. I mean, it's one of the Fortune 500, but it's not like towards the top of that list. It's Boeing. Boeing is by far our single greatest exporter firm. It would be in a situation like this the national champion, so to speak, to use language that's usually reserved for uh, for for less developed countries than the U.S. Um, and this is exactly the kind of like thinking that is important because, you know, obviously the other thing that would happen if dollar hegemony ended is that it would be a huge economic crash in the US. Like suddenly the import the costs of importing anything that were in that zone would skyrocket and it would mess up um, you know, our balance of payments and it would cause inflation, depending on how quickly it happens and how how little how much or how little time firms have to adjust uh their supply chains and stuff like that. So it's uh, this is exactly what you need in order to understand everything from the decline and fall of the Roman Empire to current geopolitics today, and 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 I'm hoping that that Steve and I, through developing the theory, will create a general framework that can be used to tie discussions that people usually have in purely political terms uh, about inter-imperial conflict into economic questions, so that there's no longer a kind of division of labor uh, between uh, between 
economics, which denies the existence of imperialism, and then the people who study imperialism as historians or political scientists or whatever. Stay stay tuned for more theories <laughs> dropping at some point in the future. <laughs> oh, and we should do our marketing pitch. If you like the stuff that you hear, you should seriously consider uh, checking out the magazine, which is at strangematters.coop. And also, please consider if you have the ability to to subscribe or donate. Um, subscriptions start at five dollars, and it really uh, it, it it really helps because all the money that we get that doesn't just go to our capitalist overlords for basically like you know paying for the services that we use to keep the website going and the magazine going. All of it goes to our writers, and we try to pay them above market rate for little magazines of our size. Uh, so, uh, if you want to see more of this stuff and more arts, philosophy, anthropology, history, uh, all the other kind of stuff, poetry that we publish, uh, definitely please consider. Yeah, we'll, we'll we'll put we'll put a link to the magazine in the description. Um, yeah, Steve, Jim, C, thank you so much for thank you so much for being on the show and for yelling at the, the econ Nobel prize with me uh, it's been a pleasure it's been great man thank you yeah and uh you can find us at it could happen here what that happened here pod on twitter and instagram um yeah we have a website where we post our sources uh it's coolzonemedia.com there's other stuff there you should go there and yeah go go into the world and make life worse for mainstream economists it could happen here is a production of cool zone media for more podcasts from cool zone media visit our website coolzonemedia.com or check us out on the iHeartRadio app apple podcasts or wherever you listen to podcasts you can find sources for it could happen here updated monthly at coolzonemedia.com sources thanks for listening judy was boring hello then judy discovered chumbacasino.com it's my little escape now judy's the life of the party oh baby mama's bringing home the bacon whoa take it easy judy the chumba life is for everybody so go to chumbacasino.com and play over 100 casino style games join today and play for free for your chance to redeem some serious prizes chumbacasino.com no purchase necessary void were prohibited by law 18 plus terms and conditions apply see website for details you don't put those inside of you do you this is a show about women I mean, you do? Finally, a show about women that isn't just a thinly-veiled aspirational nightmare. It's not hosted, not narrated, we're just dropping into a woman's world. I found out when my dad was gay when I was 10. We were in a convertible on the 405 freeway, listening to the B-52s. Looking back, I should have said, this is gay. This is already all gay. Listen to Finally a Show on the iHeartRadio app, Apple Podcasts, or wherever you get your podcasts. What up? I am Dramos, host of the Life as a Gringo podcast. This is a show for the Nosabo kids, the, the 200 percenters. Here we celebrate your otherness and embrace living in the gray area. Every Tuesday, I'll be bringing you conversations around personal growth, issues affecting the Latin community, and much more. Then, every Thursday, I'll be tackling trending stories and current events from our community. Listen to Life as a Gringo on the iHeartRadio app, Apple Podcasts, or wherever you get your podcasts.